1983, a British university student named Peter Bergen traveled to Pakistan with two friends to make a documentary called Refugees of Faith about the Afghan refugees fleeing the Soviet invasion of their country. Little did he know it at the time, but that trip would be the first of many and one of the most consequential in Bergen's life. It led to a nearly four-decade body of work documenting the rise and fall of 9-11 mastermind Osama bin Laden, his group Al-Qaeda, and the global jihad they spawned rooted in Afghanistan. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Today, as we approach the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and against the backdrop of the disastrous U.S. pullout of Afghanistan, I have as my guest CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen, here to reflect on bin Laden's legacy. Bergen produced the first television interview of bin Laden in 1997, aired on CNN, and he was the only journalist to visit the Abbottabad, Pakistan compound where bin Laden was killed in a 2011 raid by U.S. Navy SEALs. The author of nine books, including six on bin Laden, Bergen has a fascinating new biography of the terrorist titled The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden. The new biography is based on Bergen's body of work, plus thousands of documents, journals, and other materials seized in the Abbottabad raid, along with hundreds of interviews, including with many in bin Laden's inner circle. Peter, welcome to When It Mattered. Shishra, thank you very much. So where were you on that day in 1983 when you made the decision that you needed to go to Pakistan to do the documentary Refugees of Faith? How did it come about? Oh, interesting. Well, so, you know, we were two friends of mine that we were at university and the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan and we were sitting around. One of the friends uh, had been to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and we were thinking about making a film about the Afghan refugees. And then we didn't know anything about really Afghan Pakistan or making films, but like, because we were so ignorant about what was going to happen, that actually helped us because we, uh, you know, we, we went to Pakistan. Uh, we filmed, it was so long ago, we filmed this on, uh, on 16 millimeter film. Uh, we had a Afghan cameraman who was, seemed to be, uh, he was not used to these universities, work, working with three university students. You know, we filmed this film about the Afghan refugees and eventually it was shown on Channel 4 UK. So that was kind of my first, um, yeah, my first introduction to Afghanistan. We didn't go into Afghanistan. We went into the tribal regions along the Afghan-Pakistan border. Uh, at that time, President Zia was in charge of Pakistan. It was really a, a military dictatorship. Um, and uh, you could kind of feel it in the air. And we were kind of followed around occasionally by Pakistani in intelligence agents. Uh, but it was all, you know, very exciting. And I was uh, 19 or 20 at the time. And uh, that's how I got into the business. So what were you studying at the time? And, and where were you studying? And tell me a little bit about your personal background, where you were born and raised and your parents and how they responded to your decision to go off to Pakistan to make this documentary. Uh, well, you know, they didn't, I mean, they, they were fine about it. I think my mother probably worried about it a bit. But, uh, you know, once the interesting thing at that time, Chitra, is if you when you went, you left. I mean, there was no email, there was no phone service. You know, we, you know, we went, we went for several weeks and we were really gone. Um, and, you know, so I was a student at University of, at Oxford studying history. And my two colleagues were uh, also studying uh, uh, at Oxford. And, um, you know, we raised some money from some friends and family to go and do this. Uh, it wasn't that expensive, relatively speaking, because ABC News gave us the 
the film stock, um, the cameraman, uh, I think you, I, I even remember if we paid him, uh, we must have paid him something. And then we had, you know, we took cheap flights and we took trains around Pakistan. And it was all very exciting. I'd never been in anywhere like Pakistan. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember taking a train from it, Karachi to Islamabad. It was like a 24 hour train trip, which, you know, today um, I would take in a plane trip that would take one hour. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it was a very different way of experiencing the country. And um, we linked with uh, a group called NIFA, which is one of the seven Afghan factions fighting the Soviets. Um, and uh, they kind of allowed us access to their, you know, their refugee camps. And we kind of met, filmed some of their fighters on the, on the tribal, in the tribal regions and, and made this, uh, you know, film for, that eventually got shown on Channel 4 UK, which had just started, which was the first sort of more independent UK TV channel. And, and what were your big takeaways from going there and talking to these refugees and, and seeing what, what they were telling you? Well, one of the big takeaways is Pakistan. You know, I mean, you know, we called the film Refugees of Faith. Uh, obviously, you know, one of the takeaways is the Soviets were inflicting a brutal war on, their, on the population. I mean, they, they forced a third of the Afghan population out of their homes. They killed at least a million Afghans. So it was a very intense conflict that the Soviets were inflicting on the Afghans. Uh, a lot of those Afghans uh, ended up in Pakistan. In fact, they're probably now the third generation of Afghan refugees as a result of, of the Soviet invasion. You know, some of them are sort of permanently refugees in, in Pakistan or have sort of been absorbed into Pakistani society. Um, but um, well, one of the takeaways is that Pakistan, you know, took these, you know, they, they, there was very much a feeling that of sort of Islamic brotherhood and we're going to, support the Afghan refugees. At the same time, of course, Pakistan's military intelligence service, ISI, was uh, funneling CIA aid to certain of the Afghan factions fighting the Soviets. And so the Pakistanis um, certainly saw themselves as uh, playing an important role in helping to push the Soviets out of Afghanistan and at the same time housing you know, millions of Afghan refugees. So what was the next key moment in your in your evolution as a, as a student of, of uh, all of this going on in Afghanistan and, and then eventually a student of bin Laden and, and al-Qaeda? The next was really uh, when the Trade Center was attacked for the first time in February of 1993. Ramzi Youssef uh, was the leader of that. His, his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, led the 9-11 attacks. And Ramzi Youssef was an example. He was a Pakistani who'd grown up in Kuwait. And he was an example of a group of so-called Afghan Arabs uh, who, the, who, were, who were attracted to fight against the Soviets and then the communist government that replaced them. And um, these Afghan Arabs came from around the Muslim world. Um, some of them, most of them came in sort of supporting roles. Some actually fought the Soviets like Osama bin Laden who fought uh, in 1987 against the Soviets. And, uh, you know, they believe in their own minds that they'd had an impact in getting the Soviets to, to leave. I, I think that impact was very much uh, exaggerated in their minds because after all, the Afghans don't really need help with fighting. And there were 175,000 Afghans at a minimum estimated to be fighting the Soviets in any given moment. And the number of Afghan Arabs in Afghanistan at any given moment was you know, 300 at the most. There were a lot more in Peshawar and Pakistan working as doctors or aid workers supporting the anti-Soviet effort, but they didn't necessarily travel into Afghanistan. So after the war was over, these Afghan Arabs uh, you know, started kind of traveling back to 
places like Algeria or Egypt or going to Bosnia or Chechnya to support other jihads. And some of them went to the United States and carried out this attack on the Trade Center. So my next iteration in the story was uh, going to my bosses at CNN and seeing if we could document uh, this phenomenon. And then uh, we made a film uh, for CNN about these Afghan Arabs and the, you know, it, uh, interestingly, we interviewed Akhman Shah Massoud for the, in the film, who was opposed to these Afghan Arabs. He, of course, was killed by bin Laden's men two days before 9-11. Now his son, Akhman Massoud, who's 32, is leading the fight against the Taliban. Uh, probably, uh, you know, the, the, he's got a very hard road because the Taliban are better armed than they've ever been. And they've taken over the entire country and they have him pretty much surrounded in the Panjir Valley. Uh, but it's interesting as we come up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, how, you know, two days before 9-11, Akhman Shah Massoud is killed. The Taliban control Afghanistan. 9-11 happens. Taliban are turfed out. Uh, now the Taliban are back in control of Afghanistan. And Akhman Shah Massoud's only son, Akhman Massoud, is now leading the fight against the Taliban. It says something about our, our efforts there and, uh, the you know, our efforts and attempts to change things. Yeah. Uh, it's probably very unlikely that things will ever really change, right? Since all of this is all in the family, so to speak. That, that's true. Although there were a lot of changes over the last 20 years that tend to kind of uh, get lost in the discussion of what went wrong. You know, this is a very young population in Afghanistan. Uh, something like 75% are under the age of 25. There's a very vibrant, in, was a very vibrant independent press, radio, TV in Afghanistan. Obviously women could work girls could be educated, all that is about to be reversed. So then in four years after you, you did that uh, film for CNN, you had the chance to then interview bin Laden. How did that come about? In 96, the State Department released a quite useful white paper about bin Laden. And when I read it, and it was a public document, um, it, it explained that he was a financier of Islamic extremism. Um, and I thought that he, he might be, um, it seemed to me the people who bombed the Trade Center in February of 93 were part of an organized group and organizations have leaders. And I went to my bosses at CNN. I said, maybe this guy, Bin Laden, who of course they'd never heard of, is behind the Trade Center attack. Um, and he, that wasn't quite right. He, his, Ramzi Yusuf had trained in Al-Qaeda training camp, but this attack wasn't really directed by Bin Laden. But but it was you know sufficiently correct. He turned out to be the leader of this organization, which was beginning to plan for anti-American attacks. And what was it like to a, get to him physically and then to interview him? And, and what was that whole experience like? And what was he like at the time? It wasn't easy to, to meet him even then. He was very paranoid. Um, it took a lot of um, meetings with his team, you know, sort of followers and, and uh, friends and associates, in, mostly in London. Uh, some of them yeah, they, uh, there was a Saudi opposition movement in, 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 in London at the time. Uh, bin Laden was involved in that. Uh, some of, it turned out that some of these people were members of Al-Qaeda. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't even know that Al-Qaeda existed because it was a secret. Um, and over time, um, you know, we, we negotiated with them. This was their first television interview. They were very kind of paranoid and suspicious, but we, we, we went there. Peter Arnett was the correspondent. Peter Juvenal was the cameraman. Uh, we traveled into Pakistan with two of bin Laden's associates. And then we traveled into Afghanistan across the uh, Khyber Pass into Jalalabad, stayed there. 
Um, at a certain point, Bin Laden's men came and sort of inspected our equipment, said you can't bring it. They were very concerned about kind of a tracking device that might be secreted in the equipment. They, we, we then went through, they picked us up one night, we went through, and we were blindfolded, given crew blindfolds, and we traveled through the night into the, probably into the Tora Bora Mountains and waited for Bin Laden in a mud hut in the middle of the night. And out he, at one point, he, you know, in the, towards midnight, he he appeared um and he uh delivered uh we stayed with him maybe an hour an hour and a half he delivered a sort of diatribe against the u.s foreign policy in the, in the middle east and was there any one thing about him or that interview or that meeting that kind of still sticks in your mind any particular aspect of it well the whole thing was pretty exciting i mean we're going through the middle of you know we're going through the changes of vehicles blindfolded um, lots of guys with weapons, you know, AK-47s, RPGs, who are kind of checking us. Uh, been, the people around Bin Laden seemed all very serious. He seemed very serious. Um, you know, he declared war on the United States for the first time to a Western audience. Uh, so that, that was all very, you know, kind of striking. Um, but, you know, it wasn't clear how he was going to operationalize this war after all. Afghanistan at the time was being thrust back into the Middle Ages by the Taliban, which controlled the country. And then a year later, there were the embassy attacks in Africa, killing more than 200 people outside the embassy, U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. And from that point forward, Al-Qaeda was you know, clearly, a, the threats had turned into action and the action was quite lethal. So all of this work that you had done, you know, the documentaries for Channel 4 UK, then CNN, the Bin Laden interview, you were sending out some of the early warning signals about what was unfolding both in Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion and then subsequently the rise of, of, of this uh, jihadi movement. Uh, and, and also you had identified bin Laden uh, as a sort of a key future leader of terrorism and, and sort of evil in the world. And when you saw the 9-11 attacks unfold, what were your thoughts? Had you ever imagined that he would pull off something of that magnitude from all the work that you had done studying him? I mean, the short answer is you know, I, I was surprised. I mean, I mean, Bin Laden was surprised. Even he didn't expect, uh, they, it wasn't clear to Al-Qaeda that they would collapse both will, buildings of the World Trade Center. Um, you know, they, did, they just didn't know how this was going to play out. Um, certainly, there was, I had no access to any kind of classified information, obviously, but in the summer of 2001, I was quite concerned about what I thought were indications that al-Qaeda was planning some kind of major attack where it would happen I didn't know I wrote a four-page letter to John Burns the main foreign correspondent of the New York Times laying out my concerns I think the letter was August the 18th 2001 he wrote a piece uh kind of a, which explained why I mean, there was a videotape that was circulating that I thought was quite alarming because bin Laden at the time had a habit of kind of signaling that he was planning to do an attack and he did it through, through interviews or videotapes um, and it seemed to me that he was signaling that an attack was coming. And of course, it won, you know, attack, an attack did come. So your new biography of bin Laden could not be more timely given the 20th anniversary. Tell us, uh, you know, you've written many books about him. What was your goal with this particular book and, and all of the materials that went into researching this very intimate portrait of a terrorist? Well, part of it was, you know, I mean, you know, 10 years after his death, there's a lot, we, lot more we know about him, you know, not least the, all the documents that were recovered in his about a bad compound by the U.S. Navy SEALs. Those were only released in full during the Trump administration, 470,000 files. 
uh, many of those files were uh, not useful, like cartoons his kids were watching, or uh, he would draft, you know, 50 versions of the same memo. But when you boil it down, there's about 6,000 pages of useful material. Um, and, you know, this, this was all stuff he did, had no idea would fall into enemy hands. These were his, you know, most secret thoughts in a sense. It's Bin Laden unplugged. These were letters to his wives, letters to his kids. Uh, these were letters to leaders of Al-Qaeda and other uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates. And that's a tremendous trove of, you know, five and a half years of Bin Laden's thoughts as he was living in the compound. And one of the in most interesting discoveries was a Bin Laden family journal, which uh, was writ handwritten in Arabic and uh, 228 pages long. And it it, it was very useful for the book. It hasn't received, I think, the attention it deserved because it's a little hard to interpret, not only just because it's in Arabic, but it's because it's handwritten and it wasn't written for publication. It was kind of like family notes of meetings and everybody understood what they were sort of a shorthand that everybody understood. And it was uh, the the Bin Laden family gathered every night during the as the Arab Spring took place to kind of discuss the events of the day. Bin Laden was watching a lot of Al Jazeera uh, you know, listening to a lot of news programs about what was going on, he was very much aware that he, he his ideas and his followers were not um, prominent in uh, the Arab Spring. And he and his wives and his two adult daughters and his adult son were both thinking through about what he should say about it, how he could possibly kind of take charge of the Arab Spring, how he could make himself relevant again. Um, and they, you know, they spent hours and hours discussing the events of the Arab Spring, the revolutions in Tunisia and Libya and in Egypt. Uh, and uh, Bin Laden would kind of give his thoughts every evening and they would be dutifully written down in this Bin Laden family journal. And they all thought that he should deliver a major speech that would sort of take control of the Arab Spring. Now, this, of course, was totally delusional because no one was really asking Bin Laden this opinion. And the people who were involved in the Arab Spring, particularly at the beginning, were liberals or, or people just looking to have accountable governments or members of the Muslim Brotherhood who engaged in conventional politics. So Al-Qaeda and its ideas were really kind of absent. And Bin Laden's big idea that kind of came out of these meetings, he was particularly happy that his oldest wife, uh, Um Hamza, the mother of Hamza, had suddenly reappeared in his life on February 15th, 2011. She had been living under house arrest in Iran after 9-11. Uh, Al-Qaeda kidnapped an Iranian diplomat in Pakistan as part of the prisoner swap, she got released. And uh, suddenly back in Bin Laden's life, having been out of it for a decade, she uh, had a PhD in child, child psychology. She had an independent career as a teacher of deaf mute children. She had married Bin Laden at the very late age in Saudi terms of 35. Um, she claimed direct descent from the Prophet Muhammad and, and Bin Laden really looked up to her as uh, somebody, so either an intellectual peer or perhaps even a mentor. And he was uh, very excited to be uh, reunited with her. And he was sending her these, almost these love letters that we found, find in the Abadabad documents about how excited he was to see her again after such a long time of not seeing her. And at one point he even volunteered to go and pick her up in Waziristan because she went from Iran to Waziristan. Waziristan's in the Pakistani tribal regions is 300 miles from his hiding place in Abadabad. It would have been a tremendous risk for Bin Laden to do this, but he volunteered to do it. In the end, he didn't do it. She made her own way. They were reunited and he was, you know, telling her, you know, I'm sending you sort of, I want you to look at my speeches. I want you to look at my ideas, how, how are we going to celebrate the 10th anniversary of 9-11? Because this was another thing they were very preoccupied about. And then, you know, they began as having these family meetings, which were recorded in the family diary uh, so that they could come up with a, a, a great speech uh, about um, how Bin Laden could 
kind of intervene in the Arab Spring and sort of take control of it. I, yeah, it's a fascinating narrative. Uh, I, I just loved a, a lot of that description in the prologue of the book that you called it hopes, dreams, and fears. And the sense of him being somewhat flummoxed by this relatively peaceful Arab Spring Revolution versus jihad. And so where does he fit into this whole narrative? And, you know, the, the family gatherings where you talk about these uh, fake news interviews that, you know, they would interview him and then there would be all this fake excitement around his answers. And it just, and, and, and meanwhile, he's kind of this couch potato, right? Surfing TV all day long. Really fascinating a look at, at the end, end game. Yeah, you know, he, he history was passing him by. He was aware of it. At one point, you know, one of the family members says, you know, is it, is it, is it worrisome that, this was, that these revolutions were not achieved with jihad? And at another point, you know, they sort of say, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that Al-Qaeda isn't really mentioned in any of this. And at one, Bin Laden replies a little defensively, but occasionally people do mention Al-Qaeda. So he, he there were even, you know, I want another point, Um Hamza, his, his oldest wife, asked, asked they, they start discussing a speech that Bin Laden had given in 2004 on, on video or audio, and it called for more accountability for the Arab governments. And Um Hamza says, you know, maybe this is the reason for the Arab Spring. So they were all in the grip of the delusion that Bin Laden had some role to play or had kind of instigated the Arab Spring. or uh, But they also kind of dimly knew that um, Al Qaeda and jihad ha hadn't spark made the spark happen for this event. So they were trying to solve this dilemma in the last several weeks of his life. Yes, and it's it's interesting. They had the sense, right? The, the timing is everything, and that maybe th th he had lost that moment. He had waited too long. He had been silent too long. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, they were trying to encourage him to say something sooner rather than later because they 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 said you know you'll lose your kind of connection to the people if you don't come out and say something important um so they were kind of pressuring him to to deliver this speech as soon as feasible you paint him as a man of contradictions and and you sort of uh look at him in five different ways the family man the zealot the battlefield commander the terrorist leader and finally at the end game the fugitive was there anything that kind of tied all those themes together? The one thing that you walked away from as you kind of looked through his compound and walked through the bedrooms and looked through the library and all of that? Well, you know, if there is a big theme, um, you know, one, Steve Cole, my friend and former boss, you know, said a smart thing to me a long time about books. First of all, you have to write them. And then later you have to sort of interpret them to, you have to explain what you were thinking in, uh, about them when you go out and talk about it and obviously it's a book it's two it's you know you know 100,000 words and it's hard to summarize and it's uh, you've asked a very good question like is what what ties it all together and you know one thing that does tie it all together is bin laden's view of uh, religion i mean he he was a religious zealot from an early age as a teenager he was you know chanting songs about palestine with his buddies he was fasting twice a week he's praying an extra set of prayers at night um, and, you know, throughout his life, he really believed that he was doing God's will. Uh, he really believed that God uh, would punish him if he didn't do the things that he was doing. Uh, and that's certainly something that, that sort of ties together the teenage bin Laden with the leader of Al Qaeda. And he also sort of modeled himself on the prophet Muhammad. Of course, uh, you know, this is kind of a, it's like a delusional idea, but he married three women, all of whom claimed descent from the prophet Muhammad. You know, he slept in the same way that the prophet Muhammad slept. I, in his own mind, you know, 
finding founding Al Qaeda was similar to the Prophet in the sense in the founding minutes of Al Qaeda, they talk about training 314 men. Well, that is not an arbitrary number. That's the same number of men that Prophet Muhammad had at the Battle of Badr in 624, in which he fought off uh, a group of you know infidels. Um, and so, in you know, in the Al Qaeda minutes or the meetings where they kind of founded Al Qaeda formally, they use this figure of 314, and they don't make any kind of anybody reading this within Al Qaeda would understand that 314 reference wasn't meant entirely literally it was a sort of metaphor and so bin laden in his own mind was replicating the the prophet muhammad setting up his own military force uh fighting you know against fighting jihad against the infidels and i think that's uh you know that's that is the kind of key to understanding bin laden uh his his view of religion and it also seemed like his relationship with his father seemed really really important even though he barely saw him and and was uh, apparently a factor in his move towards jihad yeah by his own by bin laden's own account he became more religious after the death of, the, of his father he he barely knew his father he um, only met him on five occasions he was one of 54 other siblings 55 siblings in total and so you know it's not like he had a lot of quality time with his father he only seems to have had one substantive conversation with his father but his father was killed in a in a plane crash in saudi arabia in uh, when bin Laden was 10 and, and apparently he took it pretty badly and by his own account it's what turned him towards religion he began studying the quran which he memorized entirely which is more than six thousand verses so it's a important feat of memory that seems to have been an important inflection point uh for him certainly you say that he was very careful as a fugitive in his final days, and he lived in this huge compound with these tall walls and, you know, wore a cowboy hat when he went out so people wouldn't, you know, recognize him from the satellites and the drones and all of that. And, and he had just these two bodyguards that, and they're, you know, and he, they were his trusted people. They did everything, but they were tired. They were underpaid. They were unhappy. They were only paid like a hundred bucks a month for all the risks they were taking. Uh, and and he also and he even their families lived in the compound and he was but he was hidden even from them but he also had this huge family of his own living in the compound which seemed to be a huge risk right and ultimately kind of was one of the things that tipped off the U.S. government that there was this large family that it might be Bin Laden you know living in that compound. Tell me a little bit about that phase where the bodyguards are unhappy and you know ultimately I guess they betrayed him right in some way. Well, they didn't betray him. What they, I mean, what happened was at a certain point, they, they got fed up with all the risks of looking after the world's most wanted man. And they, they had good reason to fear these risks because uh, on, the, on the night of the raid, both of them were killed and one of their wives was killed by the U.S. Navy SEAL. So their concerns were not unfounded. And in the early 2011, they started uh, you know, meeting with bin Laden saying, we're planning to leave. And their relations became so tense that on January 15, 2011, Bin Laden wrote them a letter essentially saying, you know, you, and even though they lived just yards away from him on the same compound, uh, he, uh, he said in the letter, you know, our, the last time we met, it became so acrimonious that I wanted to get something in writing. So we all agree on the same thing. And that was that on by as early as July 2011, the bodyguards would leave. This was a very big deal for Bin Laden because, of course, they were his window on the world. He wasn't leaving the compound or with his family. The bodyguards, you know, were doing everything from, you know, picking up food to, um, to you know, taking important messages to leaders of Al-Qaeda. 
And basically, you know, without them, he would be kind of stuck. And it would, one of the bodyguards, uh, the house, that the, the compound that Bin Laden was living was registered in the bodyguard's name, not in Bin Laden's name, obviously. And uh, so Bin Laden was also going to have to move. So he was quite preoccupied, not just with the his inability to really kind of say something smart about the Arab Spring, but also with his bodyguards potentially leaving him, not potentially leaving him, planning to leave him, um, which would put him in a really difficult spot uh, because the bodyguards were actually from that area of Northern Pakistan originally. They'd grown up in Kuwait, so they spoke Arabic, but they also spoke local languages like Pashto and Urdu. Um, and you know they were also longtime members of Al-Qaeda. The fact that they were leaving him was sort of a disaster. Uh, Bin Laden was also preoccupied by the drone program. He saw that it was decimating uh, so many of the middle managers and leaders of al-Qaeda. So this was also weighing on his mind in that in that in the last months and weeks of his life. And he was even you know, people within al-Qaeda was talking about maybe moving back into Afghanistan to a remote area um, on the on the Afghan Pakistan border, maybe moving further deeper into Pakistan. So he had a lot on his mind in those in those last months of his life. Well, in addition to that, you know, you talked about the sheer inefficiency of his ability to get messages out because he had to be so careful. Talk a little bit about that, the the, the convoluted ways in which he had to communicate with his global audience. Well, it was like running a, uh, a, a business in the early 19th century in the sense that he was, you know, sending messages by messenger. Uh, you know, there was no internet, there was no phone that he was using there was not even like it's you know he he had to do send his messages by hand through trusted couriers and you know these messages could take a long time to arrive uh, they could be lost they could be ignored um they the, the replies could take a long time to get back but he was trying to micromanage his organization um you know he would write 40 page memos to uh to his key lieutenants um, to, you know, basically instructing them on matters both large and small about who should get promoted, who should get not promoted, who should get uh, where money should go, who, which organizations should get money, which organizations could say they were part of Al-Qaeda, uh, which organizations should stop killing uh, Muslim civilians, uh, suggesting particular targets, um, and, and, and also, of course, encouraging uh, attacks on Americans, all his, uh, you know, correspondence reminds everybody of the central need to attack the United States. And he would intersperse that with with other things. I was fascinated that he would advise, you know, Al-Shabaab in Somalia how to increase crop output or, you know, don't cut down so many trees because it's going to ruin the environment. So it just seemed like he had a lot of opinions. A lot of opinions. I mean, yeah, this was, he would tell people in Yemen, you know, don't uh, make sure you gas up before you go and do an operation because, you know, if you stop at a gas station, you might get picked up by the security services. So he, you know, he had his, his, his advice was both large and small, and some of it was simply ignored and some of it was followed. So Anwar al-Laki, you probably recall, was a Yemeni American cleric who was, a, became a leader of Al-Qaeda in Yemen. Al-Qaeda in Yemen sort of put him forward as a potential new leader of the organization. And Bin Laden said, I don't really know this guy, send me his resume, but I'm not inclined to promote him and didn't. Al-Shabaab, you know, was wanting to identify itself as Al-Qaeda, Bin Laden said, hey, don't identify yourself as Al-Qaeda publicly, it will be bad for fundraising. And, and the group didn't identify itself as Al-Qaeda until after he died. 
So sometimes his uh, advice was taken, sometimes it was ignored. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, were, it was constantly receiving letters from Al-Qaeda Central, uh, bin Laden's lieutenants sort of telling them, stop, you know, killing Shia, stop uh, attacking Muslim civilians, stop beheading your victims on, uh, you know, for, for distribution on the internet. Um, and they, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, completely ignored all that, all that advice. And eventually, of course, morphed into ISIS, which is now in a sort of mortal combat with with Al Qaeda, even though ISIS continues to see Bin Laden as a as a great figure. And you know, right after 9/11, we were so worried about uh, Al Qaeda potentially using chemical weapons. But in this book, you say that his advice to people was don't use chemical weapons; that it would it'll really send a bad message about us. Uh, that was fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you for reading the book uh, so carefully. Yeah. I mean. I've always been very skeptical of the idea of Al-Qaeda using real weapons of mass destruction. It's one thing to put chlorine in a bomb. That doesn't mean that is not a weapon of mass destruction. That's a weapon of mass disruption. You, you, if you blow up a bomb, bomb through full of chlorine, you're gonna, the people that are going to get killed are going to get killed in the blast, and it, the chlorine is not really going to kill you. And we saw Al-Qaeda in Iraq use these kinds of crude weapons occasionally. But, but, but bin Laden was opposed to the use of any chemical weapons uh, not because of on moral grounds, but because he, he thought it would damage the reputation of uh, his group or his associated groups. And so he was uh, advising Al-Qaeda in Iraq not to experiment with chemical weapons. He uh, did the same, gave the same advice to Al-Qaeda in Yemen, uh, you know, just, you know, because bin Laden thought that the reputation, quote unquote, of Al-Qaeda was important and that if they killed too many Muslim civilians or they used chemical weapons, it would damage Al-Qaeda's reputation. And he was so concerned about this issue that he was thinking of, of, um, of issuing a formal apology on, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 on behalf of Al-Qaeda's affiliates, sort of saying, you know, we're, we're going to be a kinder, gentler Al-Qaeda. We're not going to kill Muslim civilians. We're going to avoid that. And his, his letters are full of, whether it's Al-Shabaab in Somalia or Al-Qaeda in Yemen or Al-Qaeda in Iraq, his letters are full of admonitions to stop killing Muslim civilians. He sent letters to the Pakistani Taliban. All of these groups got letters saying, you know, don't kill Muslim civilians. Because Al-Qaeda, of course, positioned itself as a, as a group that was, you know, standing up the rights of Muslims. Uh, and so, you know, the message got very muddy if most of their victims were Muslim civilians. Well, and you say that he was so concerned about his brand, so to speak, that he was even at one point thinking about changing the name of Al-Qaeda. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he 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 knew they were changing the name. It didn't, in the end, go through. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, he was somewhat cognizant of this. He saw this as really an Achilles' heel, the the issue of killing too many Muslim civilians. Now, you also, in terms of advice, have a very short but telling a paragraph in the book that says he was advising uh, uh, Taliban leader Mullah Omar about who who should be killed, right? President Obama, General Petraeus, and then he also had some advice on Vice President Joseph Biden, then Vice President, now President Joseph Biden. Can you can you talk about that advice he gave? Well, he, he he's encouraging his group to try and kill President Obama and General David Petraeus, who was then the commanding general in Afghanistan. Um, he said, don't bother with Joe Biden. He's not prepared, who was then Vice President, of course. He's not prepared to be president. Uh, but this was all, all of these kinds of this was quite delusional. I mean, Al-Qaeda didn't have the capacity to carry out an attack against President Obama or General David Petraeus. Even when, you know, even when they were in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda's abilities to carry out these kinds of attacks was, you know, very much uh, 
limited by the American response to 9-11, but you know, Bin Laden kept encouraging people to try and carry out these, these large-scale attacks. Uh, but you know, his, his lieutenants kept saying, you know, we just, the people that we had in it for a particular operation have disappeared, or they, you know, they kept telling him that it was hard to do. What, what do you make uh, of our pullout of Afghanistan and the, the manner we did it and, and what the implications are, uh, A, for the you know, rise of al-Qaeda, ISIS, other terrorist threats, and then, of course, for the future of Afghanistan? You talked about all the tremendous, the positive changes that have taken place there in the last 20 years. Uh, what's going to happen? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's, we've seen this movie before and the Taliban are going to be not dissimilar to how they were. Before 9-11, there'll be some changes. They're, you know, before 9-11, they banned television. Now they're going to embrace it for propaganda purposes. We've already seen a lot of footage of the Taliban using American military vehicles and showing off their, their victory. And we'll see more of that. But I think uh, in terms of the Taliban kind of social order that's going to be uh, imposed on Afghanistan, it's going to be mostly, mostly what they did before. Very limited roles for women in the public sphere. Um, not much education for girls, plenty of hosting of other jihadi groups. Uh, you know, that's all of that is in the DNA of the Taliban. And as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaches, you know, we've largely prevented another attack of that scale or magnitude on U.S. soil. What are your what are your thoughts in terms of what's likely to happen? Are the risks higher? Uh, what's what's going to happen in the coming years? Well, I mean, I think, you know, what we saw in the summer of 2014 in Iraq is not dissimilar to what we're going to see in Afghanistan, which is various foreign fighters are, have already started arriving, according to the United Nations, uh, to support the, uh, the Taliban victory. Al-Qaeda remains closely aligned with the Taliban, according to the United Nations. You know, Al-Qaeda is going to regroup. Uh, they're not going to have, you know, the ability to carry out an attack on the United States. That's that's hard because of our defensive capabilities are much better and our offensive capabilities. But that said, it's going to be, you know, Al Qaeda will and other jihadi groups will likely train uh, people for to carry on the jihad, whether it's in their country, home countries, and and may well carry out attacks on American targets in the region. Uh, so that's kind of what I would expect. And also, the whole there's going to be this inspirational effect where you know, people sitting at their computers and uh, if they have these jihadi ideas are going to be tremendously excited by this, you know, great Taliban victory. And uh, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or other jihadi groups may encourage homegrown attacks that we saw. We saw that in the United States when ISIS had its geographical caliphate. Now the Taliban will have their geographical emirate. And I don't, I think the differences between these two things will be the Taliban's emirate in, in, and the ISIS's caliphate are we're going to have a lot of similarities, I think, in terms of their inspirational effect on the global jihadi movement, uh, their possibility for, for people to get training, and uh, we'll see outcomes from that. And we, we saw in Paris an attack that killed 130 people in November 2015. All of those ISIS, all the people, who, all the people who carried out the attacks had been trained by ISIS in, in Syria. And, you know, we can probably expect something not dissimilar coming out of Afghanistan. It might not be a year from now, it might be two years from now, but it, it's, it's, it's likely to happen. In closing, Peter, looking back on your life on that young documentarian who went to Pakistan uh, without really knowing much about the region, the journalist who interviewed bin Laden for the first time and strolled through the compound in the house where he'd been killed, read his journals, his files, his papers, as someone who for nearly 40 years has been 
sort of inside the heart, mind, and soul of one of the most dangerous terrorists in the world. What would you say to your younger self, that young man, about the journey that you've been on? Well, I would have said, I don't think I would say anything. I would say, I mean, because I, I think I would have all been too surprising. I mean, you don't, you know, we live, we live history forward and then we kind of interpret it backward. And, but like when we're living it forward, we have no idea what the destination is. And it's only clear afterwards where, where the destination was. So not in my, in my, you know, I don't, I didn't have some master plan to end up where I did. It just happened because of circumstances and, and, um, you know, lots of things could have been different. And one of the themes of my book is also, you know, it, I, I don't do a lot of why Bin Laden did the things he did. I mean, so there's some of it there, but I lay out more how, so the reader, he or she can kind of come to their, come to her, his or her own conclusions. But it, none of this was inevitable. Bin Laden, yes, there's this kind of theme of, you know, extreme religiosity that connects the young Bin Laden with the older Bin Laden. But there were many off ramps he could have taken. He had 54 siblings. None of them went down this route. They all had not dissimilar backgrounds. They didn't have the same mother, but they certainly grew up in the same milieu. And none of them chose this path. So one of the one of the kind of meta narratives of the book, perhaps, is that you know, and nobody's, you know, none, nothing is inevitable in anybody's life. And you know, if, if the Soviets hadn't invaded Afghanistan, Bin Laden might be a different person. If Saddam Hussein hadn't invaded Kuwait. Um, bin Laden might have been a different person if you know if he hadn't you know if he didn't have his own resources to fund Al Qaeda he would Al Qaeda probably wouldn't have existed in the same way. Uh, there are a lot, lot of different things that could have intervened that and so what happened happened, but you know there's there's not a completely straight line from the shy religious teenager to the leader of Al Qaeda decades later. And my book is an attempt to try and explain how that transformation happened. It, it's a process of radicalization that took place over decades. And on the flip side, you know, as one who knows Bin Laden better than most people, if he were here today, what do you think he would say to his younger self about the journey that he had been on, given all of his regrets and thoughts towards his end of his days that you were able to learn from? Well, one thing he'd be delighted about is the Taliban taker of, of Afghanistan. I mean, this, 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 and our pullout, I mean, clearly... Um, that would that would delight him if he was around to to savor the victory. Uh, so unfortunately, we, we're entering into kind of a new phase here where this jihadist movement is going to be, you know, it's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. Its abilities to carry out attacks in the West are, is not great, uh, but it's uh, got a new lease of life. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of know what that looks like. Uh, we've seen it in the pre- 9-11 Taliban controlled Afghanistan. We saw it in the summer of 2014 when ISIS took over much of Iraq and Syria. ISIS, of course, <clears throat> was defeated in the end uh, ge on, in a ge geographical sense. And, you know, we, Biden can change his mind or whoever is the next president can change his or her mind about what to do in Afghanistan based on the changing facts. So if the Taliban engages in ethnic cleansing, kills Americans, there's a terrorist attack that can be traced to the Afghan-Pakistan border region. You know, all these things could change, change the calculus and we could go back in uh, as we did. We went back into Iraq uh, after um, pulling troops out of there at the end of 2011. We went back in the summer of 2014 and still remain there, interestingly, with 2,500 troops that we've renamed non-combat troops, you know, which is the same number of troops, roughly the same number of troops we had in Afghanistan who we just pulled out. So it didn't have to end this way. And it's, it's not just the execution. I think the policy itself was... Uh, uh, poorly thought out. And would he say that he was right about Biden? 
No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think you know Biden has. Yeah, you know, this was kind of a throwaway throwaway line uh, in in uh, that Bin Laden wrote in one of his memos. I don't think he great did a great deal thinking about Biden. I think this is an unforced error that took place on Biden's watch, which may well you know come back to really haunt him. Uh, but you know, on, in other respects, on infrastructure, on COVID relief, uh, you know, Biden, I think, has been a quite effective president. Peter, thank you so much for being my guest on When It Mattered and for this amazing conversation. Thank you. Peter Bergen is a journalist, author, scholar, and documentary producer. He's vice president for global studies and fellows at New America, a CNN national security analyst, professor of practice at Arizona State University, where he co-directs the Center on the Future of War, and he's the author and or editor of nine books, three of which were New York Times bestsellers, and four of which were named among the best nonfiction books of the year by the Washington Post. The books have been translated into 22 languages, Documentaries based on his book have been nominated for two Emmys and also won the Emmy for Best Documentary. Bergen is New America's Director of the International Security and Future of War programs. He writes a weekly column for CNN.com and is a member of the Homeland Security Experts Group and a fellow at Fordham University's Center on National Security. Bergen also is on the editorial board of Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, a leading scholarly journal in the field. He has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.